Good morning and welcome to the Atlantic Council. My name is Bo Woods. I'm the Deputy Director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Council's Brent Scowcroft Center for International Security. I'd also like to welcome those of you watching on the online webcast. Uh, I encourage you to join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag ACCyber or tweet at ACScowcroft and at CSM Passcode. Uh, we'll be trying to take some questions over Twitter, so if you have any, send them to the, the ACCyber hashtag and we'll pull those up during the Q&A session. This morning's conversation, uh, unsure and insecure in the Internet of Things, looks at new approaches to cybersecurity and public safety in the Internet of Things. As we all know, the IoT is expected to increase the number of connected systems in our societies 10 to 100-fold in the next decade to include connected vehicles, medical devices, power grid, oil and gas, planes and trains, and more. Today we've gathered uh, several experts in this field to discuss the tremendous promise and the increasing peril that these devices have exposed us to. We will look at new policy solutions to securing newly connected devices where the consequences of their failures are measured not just in loss of privacy and intellectual property and money, but also in loss of human life, public safety, consumer confidence, and trust in government. Many of these themes are also found in the forthcoming book, Cyber Insecurity, Navigating the Perils of the Next Information Age. Uh, one of our uh, co-collaborators, Trey Hare, uh, wanted to be here, but he was unable to. Um, but uh, he helped us a lot in putting that book together. Uh, if you want to find out more, cyberinsecurity.org. You can go there and check it out, as well as uh, pre-order. Our experts today include Dr. Suzanne Schwartz, who's the Associate Director for Science and Strategic Partnerships at the Food and Drug Administration, where she works in the Office of the Center Director uh, at the Center for Devices and Radiological Health. That's a mouthful. Suzanne is a surgeon by training who joined the FDA in 2010 and whose work there has focused on evaluation of and policy directed towards medical devices. Suzanne's a longtime collaborator of ours and a great human being. Um, Secondly, we have up Joshua Corman, who's the director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative in the Brent Scowcroft Center for International Security here at the Atlantic Council. He's got extensive private sector expertise as chief technology officer at Sonatype and director of intelligence at Akamai, in addition to his civil society work co-founding Rugged Software and I Am the Cavalry. In addition, Josh is co-author, along with myself, of a chapter in the forthcoming book on automotive cyber safety. And finally, we will have Denise Anderson. Denise is the president of the National Health Information Sharing and Analysis Center, uh, a nonprofit director directed to protecting the public sector, uh, the public health sector from physical and cyber attacks through trusted information sharing. Denise is also the chair of the National Council of ISACs, uh, which helps to bridge some of the similar practices across multiple industries and sectors. But before we get to the uh, prepared presentations. We're going to kick off uh, with Robert Silvers. We're very honored to have Mr. Silvers here today for his keynote remarks. Robert is the Assistant Secretary for Cyber Policy at the Department of Homeland Security, where he's responsible for the department's cyber policies and strategies, for its work with the private sector, and for coordinating its response during cyber incidents. Thank you for joining us today, and as always, thank you to our trusted media partner, Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's new guide to security and privacy. 
if you have any questions, you can tweet them at ACCyber hashtag, and we'll bring those up during the Q&A. And without further ado, Robert, the floor is yours. Hi, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us in person and also to those who are streaming. The, the Internet of Things is not a trend. It's a full-blown phenomenon. And I'm here to talk about IoT security, but I want to start by saying I don't want to throw cold water uh, on the endeavor. Um, anyone who's talked with someone who suffers from diabetes and has about the positive impact on their life of, an, of a connected insulin pump, I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, instead, um, what I want to talk about is ways that we can engage the very complicated problem of reconciling security with the incredible innovation uh, that is making all our lives better in a lot of ways. And to recognize that while the opportunities are so incredibly rich from uh, visions of cities of self-driving cars to, uh, to, to medical devices to, uh, to smart homes, um, I think we also have to recognize that we are creating a national dependency. We are increasingly relying on networks to function properly for an increasing percentage and proportion of our life-sustaining activities in this country. And what that means to me is that when you think about the deployment of connected devices in industrial control systems, in water treatment facilities, uh, in the grid, IoT security is now a public safety issue. It's now a homeland security issue. And we need to make sure that this, this architecture that we're building is, is built on a secure and trustworthy foundation. That's, that's what we need to do. And that's why events like today's are so important, is to engage that discussion. Because we need to think about the right way to do this. The current incentives in the IoT ecosystem, speaking broadly, I don't think are necessarily driving the right results. It, it, it's always dangerous to speak uh, in generalities, but in a lot of instances, I think you're seeing product pushed out to market without security appropriately accounted for. And I think that there are agreed upon security best practices that are readily applicable in the IoT, but that implementation of those settled best practices is uneven at best. And I'm not convinced that designers and manufacturers and consumers are accounting for the costs of a security failure uh, because a, they may not be thinking about it, or B, even if they're thinking about it, they may not be the ones to bear the cost. So we need to think about collectively how we take this on. This is not just for government, most certainly, and, and, and it's, it, it, this, this involves industry at the core. We need to think about how to do this uh, together. How are we gonna address this? And for those who are familiar with 
the President's National Security and Telecommunications Advisory Committee, they issued a very powerful report a couple years ago that said we have a rapidly closing window in which to address IoT security comprehensively on the front end, or we're going to spend a generation trying to fix it uh, on the back end by bolting things on to an ecosystem that's already deployed. And we've seen the consequences with the internet, uh, which, um, which, which, was, which was not built with security in mind. We have, we have spent now a generation trying to catch up from a security perspective. And we can't make the same mistake twice. We can't do it again. We need to focus. There are some really worthy efforts out there to take this on uh, in the government and in the private sector. In the government, uh, two components of the Commerce Department, uh, the NTIA and NIST, are doing a lot of excellent work on IoT security. At the sector-specific level, you see really thoughtful uh, products coming out from, from agencies that regulate particular sectors. So for example, the medical device guidance that FDA uh, has issued, the recent guidance on autonomous vehicles that the Department of Transportation uh, has issued, of which cybersecurity is uh, one component. So th there's great work going on in the government. In the private sector, standard-setting organizations uh, are doing incredibly important work. That is, that is one of the long-term solutions uh, to this very knotty uh, problem. At DHS, we are going to be issuing a set of strategic principles for IoT security in uh, the coming months. And it's going to be a, a set of unifying principles to inform IoT stakeholders about security risks and to recommend proven approaches for addressing them. We recognize the complexity of this endeavor. This is not going to be a regulatory document. It's not uh, going to be overly prescriptive. It's not even going to be highly technical, frankly. Uh, instead, it's going to be something that executive level leaders can use to sit down with their security teams to understand how security is being accounted for in their business plan. And it's also going to be a product that security teams can use to organize their work streams uh, as they uh, do their, ver their critical security work for IoT products. It's going to be a way to draw on the best proven approaches that are already out there in various places, to pull them together, uh, to elevate them, <coughs> so that our critical infrastructure stakeholders at DHS and the rest of the community uh, uh, can, can benefit from them. And it's going to be the starting point for a longer-term coordinated effort to convene with the private sector and the government so that we can really focus on ways that we can take on this problem together and consolidate efforts. When it comes to that longer term, I think part of the challenge here is that there are so many great efforts going on out there. I worry there, there are almost too many because 
you may not have all the right stakeholders around the same table. And so there's, a, there's actually a diffusion uh, d uh, issue here. And I, and I think we need to use the, pow the convening power of, of the federal government in a voluntary way, uh, both at the, the general level and also at the sector-specific level, uh, as appropriate, to focus industry leaders, uh, civil society leaders, and others around these problems and around the efforts that can be most effective in taking on this problem, given the short window of time we have to do this, as the NSTAC report identified. So what I really want to close with is, is, frankly, a call to action for everyone in this room is already thinking about the issue, and it's a call to accelerate what you're doing. We all need to do it faster. Government needs to do it faster. Industry needs to do it faster. Civil society needs to do it faster. And the Atlantic Council, I really want to take a moment to commend uh, for their thought leadership on this issue. Josh Corman and Bo Woods are, are two uh, uh, unparalleled thought leaders in this field and someone that we at the department uh, look to for their guidance and advice uh, on this issue. And their convening of events like this, the publication of, uh, of the new book, Cyber and Security, are exactly the kinds of efforts that we uh, are going to rely upon uh, from our non-governmental partners. IoT, is, IoT security is hard. Anyone who tells you they've got a silver bullet solution is trying to tell you something, uh, sell you something. But uh, the fact that it's hard can't be uh, uh, the deterrent to us. I mean, the hard challenges are not going to get easier with time. They're going to get harder. And so we need to mobilize uh, now to focus our efforts and to act with resolve to make, to make sure that we're not only building a future that is innovative, but a future that is secure and built to last. So with that, I'd like to thank the Atlantic Council and uh, congratulate them on today's event and their upcoming book. Thank you very much, Robert. Um, definitely appreciate uh, the, the kind words um, in working with you a little bit and getting to know you. Uh, you guys are also trying to do some really great things, and, and we applaud that, as well as uh, the FDA has done some great things over the past few years, including starting in 2014, I believe it was when you put out your draft <laughs> guidance for pre-market submissions. Final. final, yes, the final guidance. Uh, so with that, I'll invite Suzanne Schwartz up to the stage, uh, and she'll brief us on her work. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak. It's always an honor and a great pleasure to be here at the Atlantic Council. I think that this is the third time in the past year that I've had the opportunity to address this audience. And each time, I could say personally, I gain more from, from the discussions and from the, the dialogue that we have uh, with my fellow panelists as well as with the audience. So I, I do look forward as well to the subsequent panel discussion as well as any questions that come from all of you. I'll start off just kind of with a bit of a framing. I don't expect that I'm going to use the entire 10 minutes, but at least kind of provide you with a bit of a you know, appetizer for what will come to follow. FDA 
is a regulatory agency, as uh, probably most of you know. Uh, we regulate medical products, and I am at, as Bo mentioned, the Center for Devices and Radiological Health. Our responsibility is to provide oversight and regulatory authority over medical devices. As a agency at large, our mission is to protect and promote and to advance the public health. And so within the medical device sphere, what we're talking about, you know, if I were to pull the statutory language, it is to provide a reasonable assurance of safety and effectiveness. And we know that there have been, as Robert has pointed out as well, there's just been extraordinary advances within medical technology and healthcare technology over the past years. More and more connected systems, more and more communication and interoperability across devices, across devices and, and uh, electronic health records as well. And these types of advances hold extraordinary promise in terms of enabling patients to have cures and interventions and to live with illnesses or disorders that they, uh, they will carry for years. Yet by its nature, these very same features also, as a result, bring into the picture new risks. And we recognize that. That's always something that has to be carefully considered. That's something that the agency, and that's the Center for Devices, CDRH, does all the time. It's about doing that benefit-risk calculus, weighing what the benefits are versus the risks, knowing that we cannot eliminate every single risk not for a medical device, not for a drug, not for a biologic. That's just basically impossible. And that translates very much to cybersecurity as well. That translates to the whole topic of medical device vulnerabilities. One thing that I've spoken about and that we talk about in all of our guidances as well is that medical device <laughs> vulnerabilities are always going to be there, or there are new ones that are always going to be emerging and evolving. One thing about this entire healthcare space as well is very much the volatility and the uncertainty with respect to what's, you know, what's next, what's coming in the next day, what's coming in the next months, what's coming in the next years. And so that requires this need to be, first of all, more agile agile within government, but agile also working with our stakeholders and medical device manufacturers. And we need to be able to provide that kind of framework to allow for that agility so that government is not an impediment towards making the kinds of advances and changes or modifications within devices to enable a str stronger cybersecurity posture. So cybersecurity has become very much so an integral part of the assessment of medical devices from our perspective. And over the past several years, we have been working together with the stakeholders across the medical device ecosystem and really across the healthcare community at large in really bringing together and raising awareness and engaging in a lot of outreach to heighten visibility on issues related to security of medical devices. This is a very hard work, 
as uh, Mr. Silvers has said. This is um, extremely complicated, and it's not something that government can own alone. A lot of our messaging has been about how this has to be a space of shared responsibility. And Josh knows I often use the term whole of community here, not just whole of government. But it really does require all of our partners and stakeholders within the ecosystem to be willing to roll up their sleeves and to and to get to work uh, because we're we're not going to be able to do this alone these systems because they are often connected systems cannot be viewed in a single silo and they can't be viewed in a vacuum it, there has to be a more holistic perspective with respect to addressing security of medical devices so what I want to highlight here is where our focus has been. There's really kind of two cornerstone concepts. If you walk away with anything in terms of what we're doing, two cornerstone concepts. One is, you've heard already, this need for collaboration. Collaboration across the public and private sector and multi-stakeholder engagement. That's number one. And then the second one that we highlight and then I want to underscore a lot here for medical devices is this concept of a total product lifecycle framework. So what does that mean? I'll spend a little bit of time going through the first one, the collaboration, multi-stakeholder engagement, and giving examples of what FDA has been doing and what we're looking forward to doing. And then we'll pivot towards number two, which is the total product lifecycle framework, and again, what we've been doing in that uh, area as well. So yes, going back to 2013, actually, uh, the agency and the Center for Devices in particular took the issue of security of medical devices uh, uh, to a, a lot more seriously, let's put it that way, um, as a result of the fact that more vulnerabilities were being identified by security researchers and they were bringing them to us for evaluation, for assessment. And, uh, I have to commend the security researcher community for really, you know, raising the uh, uh, raising the flag here and uh, bringing this to us and continuing to be such important partners to the agency by uh, uh, educating us, by uh, conversing with us, by also being willing to understand exactly how we work and how the medical device space and how the clinical community works. There's a lot of need for education and that kind of mutual dialogue and we've gained, all of us have gained so much from that over the past few years. So as a result of that heightened awareness for us as an agency in 2013, we began to really engage or immerse ourselves in a lot more of the, the cybersecurity activities that were happening across all of critical infrastructure sectors. It was really around that time that the initial executive order came out with regard to strengthening cybersecurity. Um, that was EO13636, if I recollect. And that order also kind of charged the charge NIST in developing 
together with the uh, private partners is a public-private effort to develop a framework for strengthening cybersecurity. And there was a call by Department of Homeland Security to form various working groups across the public and private sector to participate in that. And it was at that time that the agency, you know, we raised our hands and said, yeah, we need to become better educated and more involved here as this impacts on our healthcare public health critical infrastructure. So with that, um, it became also critical for whatever new policy we're going to formulate and that we're going to articulate that we be in sync, that we be well aligned with the NIST framework as well as with the presidential executive orders. And that um, opened up a lot of opportunities for us to... Uh, you know, to pull together, to convene stakeholders, whether they're there are traditional stakeholders, medical device manufacturers, healthcare delivery organizations, patients, uh, uh, other kinds of providers, but really also focusing on bringing in stakeholders that we had not previously engaged with. And by that, I'm talking really about the entire security researcher community who, once more, are really critical to bringing a uh, level of expertise, technical expertise, and understanding on the security side to medical devices. From... Uh, uh, 2013, which is when we initially issued a draft of our pre-market guidance, we then continued to uh, develop more and more outreach and collaborations, which resulted in finalization of that pre-market guidance and our initial uh, workshop in 2014 as well. Through these efforts, through this type of outreach, we were introduced to a lot of different efforts that have been going on. The NTIA uh, effort towards uh, multi-stakeholder engagement is one that we have been involved with and from which we continue to uh, gain a lot more knowledge and, uh, and bring various uh, stakeholders into the room to understand exactly how we can together work with the medical device manufacturers and healthcare delivery organizations to tackle what is a very, very challenging problem. So I mentioned, I'm going to turn now to the total product lifecycle piece because that's really you know, uh, the perfect segue here. I mentioned that we had issued a final guidance uh, on the pre-market side 2014 Obviously, uh, where the pre-market comes is to make sure that medical device manufacturers understand that security needs to be baked in. It needs to be designed into devices before they actually go and uh, hit the market, before they're actually utilized on patients, as opposed to having to deal with the after-fact of bolting them on. We're faced with a lot of devices that are actually out there in use, that are distributed, that are in hospitals. Many are capital equipment. They are not devices that can easily be changed out. Investment may have been made for five years, eight years, ten years on these devices that did not have the security built in at the time. We're faced with what we call legacy devices in this aftermarket, which is where the concept of total product life cycle approach comes into play here. And it's an approach that the agency, you know, that, that the Center for Devices is using for, devi for medical devices outside of security as well. 
this concept of we need to be much more vigilant in continuous quality improvement, in recognizing that um, a new risks or new vulnerabilities may emerge at various times during the lifespan of a device. And there has to be a mechanism in place in order to be able to identify what those new vulnerabilities are, to assess them appropriately, what does that risk assessment actually look like, and then to address them appropriately, the, the mitigations, the remediation, the communication aspects. That has been the effort that we have been engaged in really over the past year, year and a half. This is the hardest part, the post-market piece. And it's probably the most important piece in that every device that's new is eventually going to be a legacy device. It's going to stay out there. The intent is for it to stay out there longer. So what framework is in place in order to enable uh, our public and our patients to feel that level of confidence that devices are being monitored closely for safety concerns, for security concerns, and that the appropriate kind of assessment is being done on a risk basis to determine whether uh, the security vulnerabilities within a device present or pose a, um, a, a concern for patient harm, for physical harm. So um, we had issued a draft guidance on our post-market management of medical devices in January of this, of this year, of 2016. We convened another big public workshop uh, right uh, within days of release of that guidance with the intent on generating a lot of discussion as to the approach that we were formulating, uh, that we were proposing. And uh, the guidance remained in, uh, uh, open for public comment for a period of 90 days. Uh, that comment period was really essential to us because we welcome, we really encourage our stakeholders, again, across the entire ecosystem, not limited to healthcare and public health, to provide what their insights and their perspectives are so that what we can do is take those into account in finalizing a stronger guidance, one that ha that's implementable, one that makes sense, and one that also is based upon the idea of of uh, really driving manufacturers to be proactive and not reactive. And that's, that's kind of the bottom line here. We don't want to be reactive. We don't want to find ourselves in a situation where patients are actually hurt and then that's what causes uh, an immediate reaction and everyone to take note. The idea here is to lean forward and to provide the kind of framework and um, and uh, educate on what needs to be undertaken in order for devices uh, to be uh, uh, addressed from a security standpoint and modified so that security is, um, uh, you know, is being taken care of in a timely manner before patients are hurt. So what I'm going to end on, which is really important here, is I started with saying that we're a regulatory agency. We regulate medical devices. And I also said that we as government don't want to serve as impediments towards making changes uh, to devices to strengthen 
them because often what has been a big myth out there is that um, uh, a manufacturer might tell a healthcare provider that um, we're, we're not able to make these kinds of changes to a device because it would require us to resubmit to the FDA and go through an entire new <laughs> Uh, certification and clearance or approval process. What we stated in our guidance is that changes that are made solely to strengthen cybersecurity, we want to see those changes being made. We don't want to be standing in the way of those changes happening. We want to encourage the proactive behavior. And therefore, those types of changes do not require the manufacturer to resubmit, to re-engage with, with the agency. Rather, they, they're going to go through the normal validation, verification process, and that those changes should then be in, in, installed and implemented. Similarly, we've indicated even with the kinds of changes that may be a recognition of an what we're calling an uncontrolled or an unacceptable risk, that if certain criteria, if certain circumstances are met, that the manufacturer is able to go ahead and make those changes without actually having to report them as a correction to us. Again, there are specific criteria that we've identified in the draft guidance. And this is with the concept, again, of providing that regulatory incentive to manufacturers to not wait upon the agency to have to review documents and then to return a response, but rather with the goal and the unified mission here of protecting the public health. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. Uh, now I'll, uh, I'll ask to come up my director, uh, somebody I've known for quite a while and who's been focused on um, cyber safety and, and making policy changes for the better for quite a while. Uh, Josh, do you want to come up and talk to us about cars? All right, good morning. So there are so many topics I would love to touch on, but today I'm going to try, at least until our panel, um, to to focus on the chapter that Bo and I authored for the, uh, the book that we've mentioned. Um, three years ago, August 1st, um, a few of us grew sufficiently concerned about uh, public safety and human life in the Internet of Things that we decided that if we didn't step up and try to um, be a voice of reason and technical literacy and be an ambassador to public policymakers, the public, and these safety critical industries, um, that no one was really going to come rise to this challenge. We wanted to um, raise the alarm without being alarmist, to be um, to turn a phrase. And that was called IamTheCavalry.org. It was focused on the, the recognition that the cavalry isn't coming. And if it's not coming, that's a little depressing, but also empowering, because that means each of you can be the cavalry. You can rise to the occasion in, in whatever capacity that you have, with whatever skills and background that you have. And people heard the call. And on our first birthday, um, we published um, a five-star uh, automotive cyber safety framework to create a multi-stakeholder um, <coughs> device that would allow us to talk to the, the, the manufacturers of vehicles, the buyers of vehicles, the supply chains of vehicles, the regulators, the lawmakers, the, the lawyers, uh, because everyone, either 
owns a car, rides in a car, or can be affected by cars uh, or other vehicles. And we saw material weaknesses. Um, as we added more software and connectivity to these vehicles, uh, we added, uh, we exposed ourselves to, to a bevy of new accidents and adversaries. And given the incredibly long uh, manufacturing lead times and the incredibly long time in the field of these vehicles, we can't be as nimble as we might be for fixing a flaw on a website or a mobile application, for example. Um, so part of the chapter was to take this framework that's been very successful in causing and catalyzing conversations and action across the stakeholder group. And finally, through this book, say, what would a policy uh, framework look like if for lawmakers, for regulators? And essentially, I'm going to outline the five points of the five-star cyber safety framework. Uh, and the, the general gist is, for each of these things, where should the government lead, follow, and get out of the way? Now, I have observed, I'm going to use these casual terms, I have observed overall, regardless of partisan leaning, a deregulatory posture in the government towards technology. And I think there's a number of reasons for this, and some of them are good reasons, and some of them may not be. Um, I think on issues where public safety, uh, where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood, where the consequences of failure uh, are no different than those in cars or medical devices or, or other highly regulated safety industries, we need to take a more active and more aggressive posture. Um, I know we don't want to. I know the markets don't want to be regulated. Uh, but the public expects and already believes that we are making minimum safety standards and requirements for these. And when we fail to, to meet that expectation, there will be a crisis of confidence to some extent. It can be measured in loss of life and limb. It can be measured uh, potentially in impact to GDP. Uh, these, these regulated industries constitute sometimes a double-digit percentage of our GDP. Uh, so this is something we can't take lightly. Now, um, this five-star cyber safety framework for vehicles, we originally attempted it because there's only about 20 plus or minus automotive manufacturers. And we figured that was a tractable problem before we went to a really hard problem like thousands of device manufacturers in the medical field. Um, but as a testament to the strength of the, the teamwork with Suzanne and her team, um, with the full embrace to do the right thing and, and focus on patient care, um, even though we started with automobiles, it's, uh, it's no small uh, comment that um, I believe that the, the, the Food and Drug Administration and the medical device ecosystem has eclipsed the progress that we've had in the automotive industry. And, um, and I really think that that needs to be commended. Now, uh, as far as what is this five-star cyber safety framework, um, our basic belief was that all systems fail. If you take as a given that all systems fail, we really want these safety-critical devices to be um, ready for failure. And this is not meant to be a compliance checklist. This is not meant to be brittle and prescriptive. Typically, when you tell people what to do to secure something, it's wrong before the ink is dried. Um, typically, you, want, you don't want to stifle innovation. So we really wanted some first principles, some design objectives that would be evergreen. Um, and what these are, and they have fancy words, um, I'd encourage you strongly to go look at them uh, for yourself, because there's lots of details beneath the surface. Um, they're published at IamTheCavalry.org slash the number five and the word star. IamTheCavalry.org, the number five, the word star. And you can see these. Now, they have some fancy names, but I'm going to skip the fancy name for a second. They essentially say, if all systems fail, tell us how you avoid failure, take help avoiding failure, capture, study, and learn from failure, have a prompt and agile response to failure, and contain and isolate failure. 
So let me say those a little more slowly. Um, we are asking for an attestation from each of the automotive manufacturers to describe your safety by design program to your customers so that the free market can make an informed choice across different competitors. Number two, uh, take help avoiding failure. We call it third-party collaboration. Do you have a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program inviting the participation of white hat researchers and your customers to report issues to you quietly and in a coordinated way to uh, make sure you can uh, eliminate and respond to potential safety issues? And we've seen tremendous leadership in different parts of the government. You've heard a few today uh, that are really advocating for this high trust, high collaboration between uh, white hats and safety critical industries. Uh, number three is uh, evidence capture. Do you have tamper evident, forensically sound evidence capture to capture, study, and learn from failure? This was the first of the five stars I banged my, my hand on the desk about because no matter who we were speaking to, bless you, uh, we noticed that someone said there's zero evidence of hacking that's led to harm. And I said, until you have any evidence capture, you will never have any evidence. And uh, this one is incredibly important. Um, number four is, uh, do you have security update capabilities? So when there is an attack in the wild, is it patchable at all? Does the patch require people to bring their vehicles to the dealer, which takes months if it ever gets done? Or can it be a seamless, quiet, over-the-air update where everyone's inoculated before any adversaries have an opportunity to act? So that one becomes really important. And then lastly, um, uh, segmentation and isolation to separate critical systems from non-critical systems. And anybody that's been watching the news on some of these various car hacks, take the infamous Jeep hack on the highway going 70 miles an hour, um, they compromise the stereo, the information entertainment console over the air, which would be fine if they want to change my stereo, if they want to change my presets, if they want to put their picture on my, my console. That's the real issue is that that can pivot to shutting off the engine or turning off the brakes. So we have very, very poor segmentation and isolation in most modern vehicles. And if you think about these five things, it does not have a naive belief that we won't get hacked. In, in fact, it depends on the, the, the fact that we will be hacked. It just makes sure that when those moments come, uh, we are prepared for them. And we can maintain the confidence of the public and have very prompt corrective action. Um, think of this like the BP oil spill, right? That was a failure. The, what made it an incredibly expensive and damaging failure to the environment and the economy was for it, the prolonged, protracted uh, inability to stem the consequences of those failures. So in that context, the chapter um, in our book, I believe we, the, the, the head title was Safer at Any Speed, trying to, to riff off of uh, Ralph Nader's Unsafe at Any Speed. What we recognize is that there's quite a bit in those five things where the government uh, can stay out of the way, or maybe where the government can incentivize. And you're seeing the rise of the, the automotive ISAC. Um, you're seeing um, a lot of voluntary adoption of these things. General Motors, Tesla, and the Fiat Chrysler of America organizations have introduced star number two, which is uh, coordinated vulnerability disclosure programs, inviting researchers acting in good faith to submit defects to them without fear of legal prosecution. Um, so there are aspects of these five stars, but we essentially go through a matrix where the private sector will never solve these things. And just to punctuate quickly before the panel, one of the areas where we think government needs to lead or at least incentivize is on the area of number three, tamper evident, forensically sound evidence capture. Uh, there are 
individual OEMs and auto manufacturers who want such a function, uh, but it looks like the one that is furthest from ever getting done uh, organically from private sector incentives. There's a few reasons just to highlight a couple that come up often. Number one, if a car company invests in this and their competitors do not, they have just punished their margins for doing the right thing. So it has to be an equal requirement and many seem uh, willing and able to do it if it's an equal simultaneous requirement that all of them share that cost and that margin. Number two, we wouldn't really want 20 different incompatible formats of these if they're going to be used by someone like the NTSB to do safety investigations. And number three, um, it should probably be designed in a consistent way to, to facilitate and support things like NTSB safety investigations. Every time you see an air crash or a missing plane in the ocean, the first thing they say is, can we get to the black box? We must find the black box. Where do we get this before the battery runs out? Uh, there was a train crash recently on the eastern seaboard. The first thing they said is, has anyone recovered the black box? When the first fatality in a, a driver-assisted vehicle in Tesla happened, in part to learn what happened, and in part as a gesture of confidence uh, to, the, to the public, uh, they said they included NTSB in the safety investigation. The sad truth is zero cars have something equivalent to um, the evidence capture that would facilitate such an investigation. And this is an area where we think, despite a, 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 a reticence or reluctance to regulate uh, technology or to get in the way of self-driving or semi-autonomous vehicles, this is an area that requires a multi-stakeholder approach for the design, implementation, and an aggressive timeline to put this very important feature into vehicles. And there are other recommendations and points of nuance and analysis, but let me end with some quotes from the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration because Bo's opening remarks about the promise and the peril are really important here. Um, the last hard numbers they had was that there were about 32,675 deaths in the U.S. due to automobile accidents two years ago. And it's based on the, the increase the year over year. If you do the fuzzy math, it's about 100 U.S. citizens per day die in a car. Now, of those 100% uh, people per day, 94% of those are due to human error and human choice. And that is why you tend to hear such bullish, uh, aggressive, and determined push from, from the administrator, uh, Rosekind, to uh, accelerate the adoption of autonomous and semi-autonomous vehicles. Because if we can remove human choice, we can save material parts of our population and loved ones. I'm all on board for that. The reason we have to take such great care in recognizing that all systems fail and being prepared for failure is a crisis of confidence in any of these connected vehicles that scares my neighbor, my mother-in-law, my, my, uh, my babysitter, um, will postpone that dream and those savings by a good five years minimum. So we are already entrusting these. I love the dependence word that Silver's used. But if our dependence on this connected technology has outpaced its dependability, then it falls to us to very aggressively uh, drive in the scaffolding that can maintain and deserve the trust that we already place. And uh, you're hearing this, this idea of difficulty, you're hearing this idea of necessity, and you're hearing this idea of teamwork. The slogan for mine and the cavalry for the last three years has been safer, sooner, together. And I think it's being proving to be more and more true uh, every time we utter it. And to that effect, um, I was remembering the very first time we met Silvers and we said, you know, the difficulty of a thing is independent 
of the importance and necessity of a thing. And we're all out of the easy problems, folks. So we're going to have to look at some uncomfortable things, and we're going to have to push through our reticence to regulate technology, and we're going to have to push through our fear of things like software liability and accountability. Uh, I think we're going to have to focus on transparency, teamwork, um, accountability, and minimum safety requirements, because where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood, this is how uh, we live in our society and our way of life. And if we're cavalier about it, uh, we're going to uh, have very painful consequences. Uh, I thank you for your time, and I'll shift to the next stage. Thank you, Josh. Uh, and unfortunately, our, our final speaker and panelist was not able to make it uh, through the DC traffic this morning. So um, with that, we'll start the Q&A phase. Uh, if you have any questions online, you can tweet to AC Cyber hashtag. Uh, if you've got any questions in the room, we'll have some microphones running around so you can speak into the mic. Uh, when you do have a question, just uh, name and affiliation and then what your question is. Josh and Suzanne, do you want to join me on stage? Well, um, thank you both for uh, the, the presentations. I think um, certainly for people who have been following these things very, very closely, uh, you're no strangers to the scene uh, talking about these types of things. Um, but for some of the people who are newly coming into the arena of the uh, consequential failures or cyber safety, I think it's uh, inspiring to hear some of the things that we've already got on the table to be able to draw from, as well as some of the things that we need to do in the future. Um, so we'll open it up to the room for questions. Uh, we'll start with an in-room question first and then go to some from Twitter. So who's got a question? Yes, over there. Microphone. Terrific, thanks. Uh, Mark Bruner with the uh, Cohen Group, and I'm also a, a senior fellow here at the Atlanta Council. And Everything you said makes a tremendous amount of sense and great recommendations, especially the healthcare aspect is fascinating. Um, we talked a lot about the federal level, and so my question is, what about the states? So whereas we have a lot of effort in cybersecurity at the federal level, and we have the administration and others working on it, the question is, when you get down to the individual states, what should we be doing to better prepare, prepare them for these same cybersecurity threats that you all outlined? Suzanne, you Do want, you want to take me to take that? Yeah. Sure, sure. It's a great question. And, um, and this points to a lot of the efforts that within the Department of Health and Human Services, and I'll call out specifically the uh, division called ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness Response and the Office of Emergency Management has worked very closely with, with, certainly with us at FDA and with other operating divisions in terms of not only raising awareness with, stake, with stakeholders on the state and local level, but um, you know, really educating, providing tools, providing opportunities to develop what really needs to be also that you know, incident response or playbook so that 
were there to be various kinds of cyber concerns that occur within the healthcare sector, and, and frankly, not were there to be, there will be. We've seen a few examples with ransomware um, over, over the past year, particularly affecting the ability for certain hospitals to even continue in their normal operations. So um, this is a role that through um, ASPR, the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness Response, has already in place through their network that goes all the way down to the state and local level with various coordinators and into then the individual facilities, we can leverage that for not only physical related types of uh, concerns and disasters or emergency preparedness, but also in terms of educating on the cybersecurity side with regard to, again, all the connected systems with the healthcare network. So there's a lot of activity happening on the, again, education and outreach front there uh, in order to be able to get down to that level because as, as you say, that's going to be critical. It can't stay at the federal level. It cannot you know, stay within industry, but we obviously have to have a mobilization of all of the parties that are involved that would need to uh, uh, be well prepared as far as uh, uh, understanding how to deal with a concern. And that goes to also why there have been efforts together even with the Department of Homeland Security in doing various exercises. So there have been um, exercises that have taken place over uh, the past uh, years that really focus on different sectors of critical infrastructure. This past spring, there was one that was specific to the healthcare and public health sector that really, again, mobilized down to the institutional level. I have a difficult time with this question. Um, hmm. So I'll just wrestle with it. Um, on the one hand, when we engage even at the US federal level, uh, for these institutions like cars, medical devices. We're constantly reminded by industry that this is a global marketplace, that we can't have 50 different regimes for 50 different um, beliefs or countries or, or allies. So the idea of going even more atomic down to the state level is a bit daunting in, in, in one part of my brain. Um, and we also have you know, evidence from the past that some of the things that affected the automotive industry came out of the state of California. Right? It starts as a, a, a state law for emissions or for tire pressure monitoring. Uh, as a piece of trivia, though, two of our biggest weaknesses that compounded the connected vehicle problem came out of those two laws. Right? The original sin in medical is a different topic, but the original sin in hackable vehicles is um, the OBD2 port which is the port used for diagnostic testing and emissions testing, which is now gives unfettered access to the entire CAN bus and network of the car due to the lack of segmentation we outlined in star number five. Uh, so I think states play a role. They can either be a catalyst for experimentation or they can also introduce something very dangerous. Right now there's a, a law in, being drafted in the Senate in Michigan to in, introduce incredibly stiff penalties for hacking cars. And while at the federal level, we've just recently won a DMCA, Digital Money and Copyright Act, exemption to allow for white hat research of connected vehicles, um, in parallel, state of Michigan's trying wanted to add a life sentence to, ha to hacking vehicles. Now they are softening their, their guidance and recommendation. They're trying to make a carve out for researchers, et cetera. But I think uh, if we ignore the states, I think it will be to our peril. Um, if we 
allow ourselves to make you know, a, a very balkanized, fragmented regulatory approach, I think it would be very harmful to the industry that wants clear and consistent guidance. But one thing that I, I think we can act upon, and I, I don't want to say too much about this, but in the chapter, uh, Bo and I outline um, a, a scenario. Think of Manhattan. Think of the last time you went to New York City. Think of the, how few ways there are in and out or off of that island. And one of the lines we have in a very realistic scenario is, disable all the Lincolns in the Lincoln Tunnel with a known vulnerability, an available, unpatched something. You, know, you could pick the Jeeps or the Chryslers or whatnot. Uh, this becomes the, the effect of a large number of simultaneous vehicles either crashing or being disabled and, and clogging ingress and egress out of important places will become incredibly important at the state and city and local level for, for disaster planning. Um, Moreover, if you look at the Jeep hack, it wasn't a Jeep hack. It was a U-Connect hack, the Harman Kardon U-Connect, which was in several Fiat Chrysler vehicles, including a very popular vehicle making model for state troopers. Um, were these not patched, or were they not successfully patched, or were the patches not um, uh, robust enough, this becomes uh, a material weakness to a vitally necessary public safety service in the physical realm. So, I think it's a tough question. I think depending on which room you're in, uh, bringing up the states will cause them to be completely overwhelmed and shut down. In other cases, I think as we coalesce on what we think the core of our guidance and requirements need to be, we have to pull in the, the stakeholders at the state and city level. I hope I answered your question. And, and just also to add one piece, as you were speaking, that I would be reminded of, we would be remiss if we didn't mention, there was recently another presidential policy directive, PPD 41, that was issued specific to cyber incident response. And, um, and that really uh, charges all of the critical infrastructure sectors to work at the federal level and as well as with the private sector and with stakeholders at different levels um, throughout each critical infrastructure to develop what would be the appropriate, um, not only the blueprints, but also to exercise the playbooks for what incident response needs to look like within that sector. So um, if, you, if you take a look at PPD 41, that may also provide a little bit further insight in, as to um, efforts that are uh, presently underway. I know we in the healthcare public health sector are engaged in some of that right now. You know, I, I may regret saying this, but perhaps a, a rule of thumb for the relationships between the federal slash global response to responding to and rising to the challenges of connected vehicles versus the state and local. Perhaps the rubric is we should coalesce on at the federal and international level, and we should contextualize and apply uh, at the state and local level. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll take a, a question from Twitter now. Um, question is, uh, there seems to be a timing issue. Many devices are on the market or coming to market very, very soon. Uh, what's driving the sense of urgency to secure them, and how urgent is urgent? Josh, maybe we'll start with you this time. I, I want to be really clear and watch your faces. And if people have to ask <coughs> follow-on questions, please do. Because we, we, we've been agonizing over this for years. And it's very clear to us why this is incredibly urgent. And yet, some of the smartest people we know still lack the urgency in their heart. And I, I don't think it's that they're unintelligent. I think I ask myself, what do they have to believe to feel safer than they should? 
uh, or, or what do I believe that's incorrect? Um, I think we are used to security failures and we're used to a very rapid response to security failures or we're used to a very low consequence. And one of the frameworks that Bo and I have used for a few years in the Cavalry, uh, I basically just say there's six different dimensions to safety critical that are different than most of your best practices in your conventional wisdom around cybersecurity. They, we have different adversaries. We have different consequences of failure. We have different operating environments. We have different uh, composition of goods, the hardware, firmware, software. We have different economics and regulatory uh, climates. And we have different time scales. And when you put those things together in the context of, say, a hackable um, car or a hackable uh, insulin pump or a pacemaker like we've seen recently in the news, and I actually hope we get to those topics, um, the response time may be measured in years. In some of these, I'm on the Health and Human Services Cybersecurity Task Force for safety in hospitals. Some of the pro problems we've identified will take more than a decade to fix. And when you look at incredibly long lead times for research and development to design and implement new things, bring them through the 510K process, incredibly long times to live in a hospital clinical environment, maybe a 15-year lifespan for a device. And you think about Windows XP that is only meant to be supported and patchable for six or eight years. So how do you have a six or eight-year update cycle for a 15-year device with a four-year time to market? We just have incredibly out-of-whack timescales for research and development response, et cetera if they're even patchable. So the reason I care, one of the reasons I carry such urgency is if we were to see widespread attacks on hospitals tomorrow, like the ransomware that took out Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital's patient care, that was an accidental denial of patient care. Were someone to deliberately target one or more hospitals, there are zero technical barriers to them doing so. So it's our human nature to wait for a really bad uh, outcome and then do something. The, the challenge is, if that were to happen tomorrow, the the, the correct response, even the tactical responses, are incredibly unattractive timelines. And what that tells me is we have to dig this well before we're thirsty. We have to have a crisis management plan. We have to have these five postures towards failure, whether it's the five-star cyber safety framework for cars or the Hippocratic Oath for medical devices that we published. These have to be in place to mitigate those harms. And we lack the political will or the courage to tackle many of them. Um, so I'm only answering a tiny aspect of that question, but if you assume that if we get hacked tomorrow, we'll just issue a patch, um, that's incredibly dangerously uh, trusting. Um, so to add to what Josh uh, uh, has stated, we at the agency you know, have recognized that this really requires very much a shift in mindset in how we think and how manufacturers really think about uh, devices and where they reside today, um, with, whether it's, again, within a brick-and-mortar healthcare facility, whether it's in an individual who's walking around, in, you know, ambulatory, or whether it's at home. We're not living in the same world that we were living in or when these devices, many of these devices were designed years ago. And for many, that's a, you know, a, a real reality check. Um, and I often use the analogy, wearing the hat that I've worn also at the agency of being kind of the director of emergency preparedness and medical countermeasures that when devices are designed for uh, hostile environments, 
for environments that there are adversaries, whether they are known, at, uh, you know, uh, individual adversaries, or whether the adversary or the hostile environment is the environment, the nature in which it's Water. in. Correct. Water. Water, heat, humidity, whatever it is, then those factors need to be taken into account with regard to the risk assessment and the design of that device. If we kind of let that analogy go you know, to where we are with regard to the cybersecurity world today, seeing what we've seen, knowing what we know, we do have to think about hospitals and we have to think about these devices with a different frame of reference with regard to the potential for adversaries and the potential for uh, you know, being a hostile kind of environment. And again, it's not with the intent of creating a lot of hysteria or alarm. It's about being more protective and being able to therefore also detect, mm -hmm. detect and respond and recover that much more, uh, uh, that much more rapidly. So um, if, if anything, that's where the urgency is coming because we need for folks to kind of wake up to that, um, that uh, just looking around what we're seeing even outside of healthcare public health with other types of hacks that are occurring. Um, the types of breaches, the types of intrusions, whether they are intentional, whether they are non-intentional, can result in consequences that can be injurious to, um, you know, to, to patients. And, um, and therefore, bringing into the sphere for a manufacturer, as an example, a medical device manufacturer, bringing into the sphere of consideration uh, cybersecurity risks as part of that framework for comprehensive risk assessment, and that's part of the quality systems regulation. We're not introducing something new here. People often say, well, you don't regulate cybersecurity, FDA. Um, cybersecurity is part of what we consider a, needs to be addressed as part of the QSR, part of the quality system regulation to ensure that devices are safe and effective, and that the, there isn't a vulnerability there that is unmitigated, and that if it were to be exploited, and easily exploited, that it would present a risk to patients, uh, to public health. Yeah. I want to tack on one more thing, and I'll try to be brief, because I think this might come up in a different way. Let's look at the tale of two medical hacks recently, right? You had the MedSec Muddy Waters hack of a St. Jude's pacemaker, um, which Neither told. Not an actual hack. Oh, excuse me. Oh, excuse just, me. I'm sorry. Yeah. Very important Very distinction. Very important distinction. Uh, mm. You had research done by MedSec, licensed and to and, and with Muddy Waters Capital to short the stock of St. Jude's medical devices for flaws they believe they found in the pacemakers that are in people's chest cavities. Mm. Um, there was significant turmoil and discussion about is it legal, is it ethical, is this dangerous, et cetera, et cetera, and there are wildly varying opinions. Um, in contrast, more recently, um, Jay Radcliffe, a, a white hat researcher who is a diabetic himself, working for Rapid7, found uh, flaws in Johnson & Johnson insulin pump, um, worked with Johnson & Johnson, worked quietly, worked across five months, even uh, if you pay close attention, you might see that he used to be on the schedule for speaking at DerbyCon, but didn't end up doing the talk, maybe because people needed more time. So in one, it was focused on uh, maybe shock and awe or forcing the hand of, of a manufacturer or profit. 
On the other hand, it was centered around patient safety. And you know, typically, if you look at something like Google Project Zero, um, they give 60 days or so uh, before they'll tell the public. But for something like a medical device that might require surgery to fix, potentially, or for something that requires validation, are all these bugs real or not? Um, the timelines have to be longer if we're going to do it carefully and consider not causing panic or hysteria. So there's many aspects of that story I'm not going to get sucked into at the moment. But one thing I want to carve out that I've never said publicly is you have the before times where the FDA had no guidance and manufacturers didn't know better and they were very trusting and they assumed no one would ever hack the devices. And now you've got this intermediary period where we've gotten religion, we've figured it out, we're grappling with it. And then there's going to be a future state where we have fully internalized everything we had to learn. We're in the middle period right now. So the St. Jude's medical devices have design flaws I'm not happy with. So does every medical device. Uh, that's why we started what we started. The Johnson & Johnson insulin pump has design flaws and weaknesses I am not happy with. And, and the method and manner we use as white hats to disclose these vulnerabilities can increase patient risk. So it's not, the risk isn't caused by the researchers. It's not all the manufacturer. But it's just the ground truth that we have a long tail of legacy devices that are in the marketplace that were pulled to market before we knew better. And I think the three things that mark the enlightenment is the pre-market guidance from Suzanne's team, which started to embrace some of these principles we talk about in the Hippocratic Oath, the first essential safety communication of the Hospira drug infusion pump, pulling a product from market, not because it killed people, but because there was an unmitigated pathway to harm. And that sent a shock to the board of directors and to the the, the executive teams at all these manufacturers that we can no longer kick this can down the road. And then brought full circle with this January's post-market draft guidance, which is being worked on to be final guidance. That becomes the corpus of now we know what we should be doing, and we'll continuously improve that. But there's a lot of devices that came in the before times, and we're not going to give them a pass. But we have to understand in context, we're stuck with those for quite some time until those devices come out. In fact, if your guidance came out tomorrow and someone starts building a device tomorrow, it'll be a good three, four years before we'll see that in the marketplace. And how we conduct ourselves as a total community, the press, the researchers, the patients, the hospitals, the regulators, how we conduct ourselves in this transition period is going to be if we can maintain confidence and protect life. And so I do want to add to that, though, that it's important to ground this discussion in recognizing that while there are devices out there and, and all medical devices have vulnerabilities and that there are legacy devices, these devices serve often critical life-sustaining functions and benefits. And Ultimately, you know, when it comes down to it, we have to be able to look at the benefits versus the risks here in terms of what that's providing to patients. You know, uh, Jay Radcliffe himself, as the researcher involved in the uh, well-done coordinated disclosure of J&J &J and Rapid7, indicated in a blog that um, were, were his children to need these devices, he would have no qualms, you know, he had absolute confidence that they should get these devices today. You know, so it's in, in parallel with recognizing absolutely that the, the security um, aspects 
need to be dealt with. We cannot ignore them. We need to be focused on them. We also can throw out, you know, the baby with the bathwater here. We cannot dismiss the fact that these devices, were they not there, many patients may not be alive today. And that's, and that's really important to bear in mind here as well as we, as we frame this entire discussion. And that ground mm -hmm. truth of the vulnerability mm -hmm. enables that proper risk decision yep. and future yep. design changes. That's correct. Okay, we'll go back to the room. I think I saw your hand first. I know those were long answers. I hope they were good ones. <laughs> uh, hi, Jonathan Lichman from the Providence Group. So um, to take threads from a number of things that were said in terms of whole of community and the hard problems still yet to be addressed, um, much of what we talk about is the executive branch and the regulatory agencies, communication among and between. But my question is, you know, what is, what is your belief, what is your thinking about the role of the legislative branch? And are the oversight committees properly structured to deal with the cross-cutting issues of cybersecurity across these different things? And w where do they come in, in terms of the whole community and the best place for them to participate in moving this forward? Josh, you want to take that one first? I'm not even sure how it, you'll be able to say, but um, there is a role for legislation. Part of the chapter Bo and I wrote where we didn't just say what's the role of government versus private sector. We said what's the role of Congress, what's the role of National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, and what's the role of the private sector. Um, and in some, we didn't say lead, follow, or get out of the way. We said where should they lead, where should they assist, where should they incentivize, where should they require. So we have a nice little matrix. Um, and it's maybe we're wrong, but we'd like to stimulate that debate. I, I think there has to be a role for lawmakers here. Um, in some cases, we have regulatory authorities. In some cases, the FTC plays a role here for consumer protection to complement what the FDA or NHTSA can do. In fact, if you heard some of the, 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 re, the wording around how NHTSA plans to regulate, they seem to think privacy issues will probably be enforced by FTC, safety issues will probably be enforced by them, it'll be a bit of a mixed approach. I think the role is going to, we believe they're going to have to at least use some, for example, I'm on the Healthy Human Services Cybersecurity Task Force. That was an act of Congress in the CISA Act of 2014, right? 15. 15, December last year. Um, I would like to see, and I believe we recommend, similar but shorter task forces to design uh, with a multi-staker approach a privacy-preserving, tamper-evident, correctly sound standard for black boxes and an implementation timeline. Um, if people bring up privacy later, I'll come back to this very black box topic. Um, but uh, that's not likely to happen with the regulator. It's probably going to have to be forced through Congress. And separately, um, there are people drafting laws right now or bills right now for um, responding to the ransomware problems. There's some discussion on the Hill around the very, very large DDoSs from the leper colony of IoT devices that are unmanaged and unpatchable. Um, they're, they may or may not act, but they can also convene. We've had si significant um, collaboration with House Energy and Commerce, for example, on the need for coordinated disclosure and cooperation between uh, the medical device manufacturers, ecosystem, the automotive ecosystem, and the White Hats. And I believe there's another uh, convening on that topic coming up. So they play a role. Um, I think they're reluctant to legislate IT, just like I said, the regulators are reluctant. Um, I, for a number of reasons like tech literacy, like heavy influence of lobbying, like 
the rapid rate of change, like the fact that these are global markets, there's a bunch of good reasons. But I think, um, I also said in my presidential, there was a the presidential uh, commission on enhancing cybersecurity. I was one of the testimonies recently. I put in there that I think we're just going to have to, we're going to have to push through that discomfort on safety critical things. None of the areas in your physical life that can affect you, safety have voluntary standards. None of them, right? They might have voluntary guidance on top of it, but if it can kill you, there are minimum requirements. And one of the things I pushed hard in my verbal and my written testimony was, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's hard, even if the, the trade associations are going to hate it, we're going to have to have minimums for some of these things. I'm not sure if Congress will act, but some of these things can only be done legislatively. Suzanne, I don't I'm know if you really can comment the only on. thing, Yeah, there's not much that I can really comment on other than simply saying that we engage uh, uh, Quite frequently on all kinds of you know issues, security as well with our with various congressional committees for purposes of informing for briefing whether it is on guidance whether it is you know to again further educate on what what's happening within the sphere of medical device the medical device community as part of the you know decisions that uh, that Congress may make. I do believe mm -hmm. that after a high consequence failure, mm -hmm. you'll see more action from Congress out of necessity. I, I just would like to see more proactive. All right, uh, we got time for maybe two more questions. So, uh, yes, ma'am. Do you want to do the, uh, let everyone ask and then we pull them all together or no? Yeah, let's see how much time we've got after this one. Sure. Hi, my name is Misty Blowers. I'm um, the Vice President of Cybersecurity Research with ICF. And I have a question about, um, the trade-off between enough security testing, which costs companies a lot of money, and just paying for the insurance to cover you in case a, a cybersecurity incident occurs. Um, and how do you determine that threshold as to you've tested it enough, especially considering some of these systems um, haven't been baselined to determine what their inherent flaws are with cyber security aside. So the, the proper answer will take too long, but I'd be happy to talk to you. Uh, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a thumbnail answer. Um, there was an article today about, um, it was quoting Akamai, how there's a, new, there's a, a vulnerability that's over a decade old, uh, a CVE involving SSH, that's enabling many of these massive DDoSs in these IoT devices. Um, the, the, the flaw that allowed the SamSam ransomware to, to cause thousands of hospitals to pay and caused an outage at Hollywood Presbyterian was a known vulnerability in JBoss in a device that people just aren't tracking and managing. If you look at a lot of these things, um, they're mostly known vulnerabilities that enable these things that are entirely avoidable if we were to introduce software supply chain transparency, some sort of due care standard that you're not responsible for zero day vulnerabilities, but you are responsible for known defects that have been around for a decade. Um, one of the challenges here is there isn't a software liability regime and there's been 30 year resistance to doing one and without even getting into all that right now, um, I think questioning pre you know, testing and rigor and insurance is a premature um, question in many ways because we haven't even addressed the obvious things. 
yet. And buying insurance and pricing insurance and having a vibrant insurance market, which by the way, cyber insurance is anemic right now globally, in part because it doesn't cover anything meaningful, in part because we have no liability. There's a whole, all these things are interconnected and we are working on a multidisciplinary analysis of software liability uh, and triggers and arguments for and against. It's gonna have to involve an economist, an underwriter, a, a legal expert, and cyber experts at a minimum. And right now we can act, and we can act aggressively, can we can act meaningfully without those things in place yet. I still appreciate your question, but I wanna get to the baseline minimum hygiene before we start talking about how hard should we test. I'll just add to that, I'm not gonna to speak to the insurance side, but rather on the security testing side. As, as Josh said, there's, there's a maturational process that's needed here, uh, certainly within the medical device community. And seeing uh, uh, basic hygiene, getting uh, uh, the uh, industry to uh, really embrace the need for threat modeling, hazards analysis involving security, doing the appropriate testing again on, you know, when, if we're talking about new devices, that in and of itself is a process that we know you gotta, you know, we talk about crawl, walk, and then run. We're not gonna, you know, be able to leap all, leapfrog all the way to having uh, a stellar uh, model, but that, you know, even incrementally, any kind of um, steps are going to be positive. We do think the agency, you know, in terms of even our guidance, that, that security testing um, is going to be critical to be done in the pre-market side, but that's why, that's so much why, you know, the community and the collaboration across experts outside of um, uh, perhaps an individual manufacturer is going to be so necessary in addressing these issues because many manufacturers today, particularly among medical device manufacturers, compared to pharma, they may they're very very they can be very small companies. They may have the most wonderful um, innovations, the most promising technologies, but are do not necessarily have within them the same degree of resources. Uh, and capabilities um, embedded within the organization to address the type of testing that the device actually may warrant going forward. That's why there is a real need for this kind of building of partnerships and integrating within the community to do so. And we're starting to see that happen among um, various organizations that are developing different types of uh, uh, consortia that uh, and hospitals are, uh, various hospital organizations are doing so as well. One thing we didn't touch on at all today, which may be worth, <laughs> you're smiling, maybe this is where we're going also, is the lever of um, uh, procurement contracts and how healthcare organizations are now utilizing the idea before they're going to purchase a new device, they want to see certain elements that uh, the manufacturer has already undertaken or that will commit to undertaking over, over the lifetime of that device before bringing it into their institution. And that's also can part of the shift that we're seeing within this uh, entire ecosystem space that um, will also include the security testing aspect too. Yeah, and it's not just about crawl, walk, run on how hard is it, that's also true, but one of the reasons I push so hard for this known vulnerability hygiene is that the adversaries, I make, make an XY axis in your head, right? Capability, zero to a lot. 
and mm. intent, zero to a lot. The high capability state-sponsored adversaries, they don't need known vulnerabilities, and we're not gonna stop them with hygiene. The high intent people like Janayad Hussein, Trick, who we killed with a drone strike, who joined ISIS to teach people how to hack, who wants to hurt the infidels, who can in a hospital environment, because we have unpatched and unpatchable XP systems and known vulnerabilities. It, hygiene will really help with the most high intent, low capability class of adversaries. So yes, we have to start somewhere, we have to build our maturity, and it has the highest impact on public safety and confidence. All right, uh, how many questions have we got left in the room? This guy's been super patient. Just one, <laughs> yeah. All right, your question, then we'll do a wrap. Okay. Quick, um, Paul Lyons with TS Cyber. Um, you know, take the Gartner number of 20 billion connectable devices globally by 2020. There's a lot of them out there. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the things and the internet of things, but there's the old cyber hacker adage of, you know, why do I need zero days when I have dopey humans? So where should the user be owned in this, you know, in this discussion? Where's the user's responsibility? A, a trite answer for now is part of the spirit of the five-star cyber safety framework, a key stakeholder is the buyer, the consumer, because that unlocks free market forces and competition. And while you may not, you might know, but very few people might know the difference between a three-star crash-rated car and a five-star crash-rated car on the methodology. They know if they want a safer car for their newborn, they go for a five. So we have to create market signals, market transparency. We have to do a little bit of education and awareness on, so the buyers know what to look for. Next week, NTIA, the very same multi-stakeholder process we've been working on for disclosure, um, is doing one on patching for IoT, uh, lots of categories of IoT. And one of the things I've suggested before the meeting is maybe the minimum, minimum viable product for this is treat it like a warranty, require, or a voluntary standard where you say, we, on our packaging, say we are patchable and we commit to patching for three years after the purchase or for five years. So if we can start to acclimate the public that the ability to patch something that's vulnerable is going to become a buyer requirement and, or how quickly they commit to patching within 30 days or whatever it is, that's, a, that's not necessarily robust. But some of this is going to have to be raising up um, buyer criteria and giving them the transparency to make informed risk choices in a free market. Um, I would add to that that um, we certainly know, you know, users can include providers like within hospitals and healthcare delivery organizations. They can include the patients themselves um, or, or a patient's relatives. So users are, uh, can encompass all of those. And, um, you know, in broad strokes, a more informed user around issues of security is hopefully, you know, going to lead to, you know, bringing up that level of better cyber hygiene and practices. We've heard, and we, uh, part of the reason we do a lot of outreach and education on the hospital side is that there are practices, there are um, uh, ways of uh, uh, basically, um, you know, taking shortcuts um, that lead to potential vulnerabilities or vulnerabilities being exploited. And um, um, often that may be also simply a lack of awareness among the boots on the ground, the providers of that, of the consequences of their actions, that there needs to be a little bit more awareness and education on that side. You know, maybe I glossed over it, but just, um, just to tie this off, the five star for cars that we did, right? Um, 
I, I know the chief security person at pretty much every car company, and I just had to get a lease this spring. And I, I said, I'm not going to buy a car. Two years ago, I said, I'm not going to buy a car that doesn't have or is working on all five of these things. I can't find one. No one's, no one's got all five. So I, I at least said to myself, I don't know how hackable they all are, but I'm going to get one that has a, a known vulnerability disclosure program. I mean, a vulnerability disclosure program, because that means they're more likely to learn from things. And I'm going to prioritize one that can do a patch over the air, because they can respond more quickly. And I think over time, um, we may not know this, and even in the MedSec Muddy Waters stuff, all the hedge fund guys calling into us saying, who, who should we invest in from a medical device innovator's perspective? I said, I don't know who's most hackable until I test them with a consistent methodology. But I'm going to start looking, and you can start looking for people who have a disclosure program, who have a patching process, who invest in tamper-evident evidence capture, who segment and isolate. Those programs or postures are indicators of a healthier organization that's going to have a continuous upward spiral. And whether that's the right list or not, you know, let's do some experimentation. But I think that empowers people to make smarter choices. Yeah. All right. Uh, do you each want to take about 30 seconds and give your final thoughts, uh, starting with Suzanne? OK. <laughs> Uh, I want to come back to where my uh, opening remarks were on the cornerstones of um, where we believe within uh, the healthcare realm um, we need to go, and that is, you know, continuing to foster, to continuing to encourage that engagement uh, uh, amongst all of the partners uh, and stakeholders within the ecosystem. How critical that is, and uh, once more, the focus on bringing um, what was maybe formally you know, pre-market versus post-market in this very kind of siloed um, uh, pictorial, bringing that together in more of a total product lifecycle framework approach and how uh, driving towards this concept of continuing to improve the quality of these devices. And that, um, that means a mindset of being continuous in one's monitoring of devices and in which everyone really has a role here, not merely the manufacturers, but you know, the healthcare delivery organizations, patients, security researchers, government, everyone has the opportunity to, and, and really responsibility to help in uh, essentially what will then be enhancing or strengthening the posture of, uh, for cybersecurity and within the sector. I'm just, uh, it's really ringing in my mind is, you know, what, where we started with Assistant um, Secretary Silver's, um, you know, that the difficulty of a thing is, is independent of the necessity of a thing. And these are hard, hard problems. And we need to push through them. You know, uncomfortable truths require uncomfortable responses. And we're, we're there. Um, so whether it feels like we have urgency or not, um, we have to put the scaffolding and the work in now, or at least 80-20 rule, to be better prepared for failure. We know we're going to be fix this eventually. We'd like to do it with the most confidence, trust, and safety we can. We know we'll be safer. The, it's almost sounding cliche, but it's so profound. We will be safer sooner if we work together, and that includes you guys. Uh, so um, let's tackle the really hard problems before we wish we had started earlier. All right. Well, uh, thank you all for coming in this morning. Uh, we're now going to close uh, this Cyber Risk Wednesday, and uh, we'll see you out in the, the lobby for some coffee. Thank you for tuning in on the webcast, too. Right. Thank you. On a, on a Friday.